Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Psalter reading today comes from Psalm 34, verses 15 to 22. Let us listen with open hearts and open ears. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord rescues them from them all. He keeps all their bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second Old Testament reading listed today in the worship bulletin is part of the three-year cycle of lectionary readings that, if read by a church, exposes the church to most of the Bible in a course of three years. Today's selected verses omitted a big chunk of chapter 24, likely to save time and move us along, but we got time. We almost always finish a little early, so I'm going to add the whole story. Listen now for God's word to you. Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. This following section is the part that was omitted. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave to Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in its mists, and afterwards I brought you out. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. When they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did to Egypt. Afterwards, you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan, they fought with you, and I handed them over to you, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then King Balak, son of Zippor of Moab, set out to fight against Israel. He sent and invited Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he blessed you, so I rescued you out of his hand. When you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, 
the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I handed them over to you. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove out before you the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and towns that you had not built, and you live in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive yards that you did not plant. Now we pick up the part included in today's reading. Now, therefore, revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, if you're unwilling to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me, my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our ancestors up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. He protected us along the way we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for the Lord is our God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Bruce was really looking forward to his summer vacation. Two weeks at the beach with his family sounded absolutely wonderful. It sounded so good on paper, so good for his soul. But what Bruce didn't realize until he got to the beach, into the home that the whole family was staying in, what he didn't realize until he began his vacation was that everyone in his extended family, and I mean everyone, was going through something. Bruce and his wife were struggling, really struggling to raise little kids. His sister was learning to live alone with two teenagers. And his parents were having a really hard time adjusting to life together after retirement. Everyone was in a really difficult spot. And so, surprise, surprise, we've all been there, right? A few days into the vacation, tensions boiled over. During dinner, Bruce noticed his nephew once again texting under the dining room table. He knew he shouldn't say anything, it wasn't his business, but he was so tired of his nephew being on the phone all day long that he couldn't help himself. When he asked him gently but directly to stop texting during dinner, Bruce's sister snapped back, hey, you worry about your own kids. At this point, it was Bruce's father who pointed out that his kids were actually balancing spoons on their noses. As things escalate, as they can quickly in a family system, brother's brother, Bruce's mother, excuse me, she cried out, why can't you all get along? This happens every year. And she stormed out of the dining room. Been there? Done that? Later that night, Bruce and his father were alone in the kitchen washing the pots and pans. When Bruce's father spoke, he noticed there was fear in his voice. 
and tears in his eyes. Bruce, he said, I, I'm a little worried. I think our family, I think our family is falling apart. Bruce replied, no, Dad, it's not. In fact, I think our family is stronger than ever. Now, Bruce was able to say that with confidence to his father, who was crying next to him in the kitchen because his microphone didn't keep falling down. It was securely fastened to his lapel. I'm sorry about that. He was able to say that to his parents, his father, because he had just spent several years looking for the secret sauce that holds families together. The holy grail of his search was the one thing that made families, along with other groups, resilient, even happy, regardless of the challenging circumstances they may or not, may or not be facing. After years of meeting with families, scholars and experts ranging from peace negotiators to online game designers, a surprising theme began to emerge in his research. The single most important thing we can do for our families, for our systems, for our communities, to strengthen their resiliency is to develop in them a strong family narrative where successes and setbacks are remembered side by side. The most important thing he found that we can do for our families, for our communities, for our cities, for our churches, is to tell our whole story. In today's passage, Joshua, the leader of the people of God after Moses' death, gathers the tribes of Israel and places them and takes them to a place called Shechem, the place where generations before God appeared to Abram and promised him a land and a people. Responding to this strange promise from a strange new God, Abraham built an altar there at Shechem, the first sanctuary to Yahweh. In the book of Joshua, we also learn that God designated Shechem as a city of refuge, a haven that interrupts and transforms a landscape marred by violence and revenge. Joshua gathers God's people in this sacred place that orients them to the boundary between justice and mercy and near the altar that commemorates the beginning of their relationship with God. He gathers them there in that sacred place with all those memories to offer them a choice. Choose this day who you're going to serve. But as you heard in today's really long reading, before Joshua offers them this life-changing choice, he tells them a story, their story. A story that begins with God making a promise to a man named Abram and his descendants, then leading this ragtag group through a foreign land. A story of the miraculous birth of a boy named Isaac to Sarah and the boy's near death at the hand of his own father. A story of two brothers named Jacob and Esau who fought and fought over their birthright until eventually they found peace. A story of Jacob and his 12 sons who cast the youngest Joseph into slavery only to have him save their lives. A story of two men of different temperaments named Moses and Aaron leading God's people out of slavery and then having them wander in the desert for 40 years. A story of conflicts with other nations, other peoples, who sometimes lost to God's people and other times conquered them. 
a story where men and women surprise and disappoint, a story that ends with the people standing with their new leader, Joshua, right back where the whole thing started. Before he offers them the most important of choices, Joshua recounts for the people their whole story, both the good and the bad. Bruce Feeler, the researcher who uncovered the importance of developing a strong family narrative, first heard of the idea from a man named Marshall Duke, a psychologist at Emory University. In the mid-1990s, Dr. Duke was asked to explore myth and ritual in American families. Around that time, his wife, Sarah, a psychologist who works with children with learning disabilities, noticed something interesting about her students. The ones who know a lot about their families, she said, tend to do a lot better when they face challenges. Her husband was intrigued, and so along with his colleague, Robin Fivish, he set out to test her hypothesis. To do that, they developed a measure called the Do You Know Scale that asked children to answer 20 questions. Questions like, do you know where your grandparents grew up? Do you know where your mom and dad went to high school? Do you know where your parents met? Do you know an illness or something really terrible that happened in your family? Do you know the story of your birth? They asked the questions of dozens of families and taped several of their dinner table conversations. They then compared the children's results to a battery of psychological tests the children had taken. And when they finished, they reached an overwhelming conclusion. The more kids know about their family history, the stronger their sense of control over their lives, the higher their self-esteem, and the more successfully they believe their families actually function. All too often, before and during this age of social media, we work really hard and spend a lot of time presenting the best version of ourselves. The average person spends 20 minutes creating their Facebook profile photo. Like museum curators, we only display our best collection of images and stories, only our good side, keeping the failures and the struggles and its disappointments out of view and to ourselves. We talk about the job we got, not the ones we lost. We tell about the time we aced the exam, not the time we failed the class. We share highlights of our loved ones at their funerals, which we should do, but we so often gloss over their deficiencies. We highlight and uplift historical events we're proud of, and we should, while we bury the events of the past that we are ashamed about. We talk about the periods when the church thrived not the moments when it nearly fell apart. And when we do this, when we only tell part of the story, we cultivate the illusion of control, which is exactly what the gods were offering, the other gods were offering Abraham and the people. The promise of the other gods, the lesser gods, are always if-then promises. If you want it to rain, worship me. If you want to win the war, worship me. If you want to be happy, worship me. If you want to secure your retirement, worship me. If you want to feel good, worship me. And choice by choice, we fool ourselves into thinking that blessing is a sign of God's favor and curse is a sign of God's punishment, which I think gives us way more control over our lives, perceived control, than we are ever equipped to carry. 
But another thing happens when we don't tell the more challenging parts of our stories. I think we unknowingly write God out of the narrative. When we only tell the good stories, when we had enough, when we felt good about our choices, when we felt safe and secure, we don't teach our kids or remind ourselves that God was also with us, is also with us, giving us what we need when we are operating in a deficit or when we're making really, really bad choices or when we feel threatened, lost, and alone. When Joshua asks the people who they will serve within the narrative of their successes and their failures, he is reminding them that before they choose God, God chooses them. I wonder what difficult stories about this particular church, this particular community of faith, you might be reluctant to share. What stories of failure need to be told here to build up your resiliency and your confidence in God's provision? I know no one wants to stir up memories of the pastor who failed you or the times when your church split or when the people of the church were on the wrong side of history or when painful betrayal and loss nearly broke you. I get it. But what if these stories are the very stories that need to be shared? We all want to move on from the past, but what if by leaving the challenging times in the past, we unintentionally leave God there as well. One of the misconceptions that we pastor types have to kind of undo in people is this idea that choosing to worship God, choosing to serve God, to follow God, in some way inoculates us from trials and tribulation. Of course, this is not true. Jesus speaks of picking up his cross, our cross, and Paul talks about how suffering produces endurance. Life, as we know, happens to us all, whether or not we choose to serve God, the pandemic has reminded us all of that. And so, like those Israelites at Shechem, we find ourselves again in our sacred place, surrounded by our stories of success and failure, with the choice, once again, presented to us. Who are you going to serve? And in our world, where tribalism and identity politics threaten the relationships that have brought the world in the past such peace, we need to choose the God who is big enough for everyone. In our nation, where the normalization of greed and hatred and prejudice threaten to undermine our democracy, we need to choose a God, the God, who has seen this kind of division before. In our church, with its uncertain future, we need to choose the God who has led his people before into the unknown. In our schools, and places of work where cultural forces are pulling us apart into smaller and smaller groups, we need to choose the God who knows how to bring people together. When you take a really good long look at the story of God's people, both documented in our scriptures and in our lived, shared history, it becomes really clear that God is not present in good times and absent in bad. God is there for all of it. God embraces all of it. God works through all of it. God uses all of it. For there is no place, no people, no situation, no pandemic, no fractured nation, no shrinking church, no muddled historical narrative where God will not come to give us the choice to follow the God who loves us 
and claims us over and over and over again in good times and in bad. Amen.